from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 31st. Today, the arcane process behind the Iowa caucuses and the vote that sets up the president's acquittal. The way I described it to somebody I I know is that it's basically just this giant game of musical chairs happening all around the state. He's holding the baby she was born yesterday, and she says, we have to go vote for your future. It's really awesome, and... I mean, who comes to Iowa for, you don't come to Iowa for anything other than the caucus. You can tell the hype and excitement, um, the buzz in the city. Yeah, Uh, you know it's near. (laughs) The Iowa caucuses are a very long tradition. Kayla Epstein has been reporting on the Iowa Democratic caucuses happening on Monday. They're this very organic form of democracy. It's literally people gathering in homes. We are at a hotel, actually. Gymnasiums and rooms. We're Muslims, and we are going to do it at the mosque. To physically vote with their feet for who they want to be the next president of the United States. And just to start things off, tell me about how people in Iowa feel about the Iowa caucuses. Iowans cherish their first-in-the-nation status, and they understand the responsibility that that comes with. And so Iowa voters are really engaged. I don't know how old I was, but I was in elementary school, and there was an election. I did not know what was going on whatsoever, but I had a T-shirt for a candidate. I saw someone speak and made a poster. It's very much a part of Iowa's political culture. There are critics of the Iowa caucus, both in the state and outside of it. But for the most part, this is just such an old-school, time-honored tradition. And the parties will tweak the rules for each election, depending on what they need to do or how they feel they need to adjust from the last time. But for the most part, the process has stayed pretty much the same for a very long time. But the problem is, is that for people outside of Iowa, the process seems really confusing. I think that most people, if you were to ask them on the street, how exactly does a caucus work, they wouldn't necessarily be able to tell you. The Iowa caucuses absolutely are confusing. I'm the one who wrote the explainer for the Post, and I still had to do a ton of research. And even I'm not a 1,000% convinced that I will ever fully understand it. Caucuses, you have to actually show up at a location at a designated time. There is a proceeding that begins, and then you start voting. And you have to be there until your vote is basically cast. And it's not like a primary where you can just fill out an early voting ballot if your state does that, or you just show up at the polls whenever you can, giving you more time. You have to be physically at the voting location at a caucus on the night that it is scheduled. This year, they're going to happen on February 3rd. That is next week. And they start at 7 p.m. Eastern time all around the state, and they will go for however long they go. So once you get there at 7 p.m. on the night of the caucuses, what actually happens. So in Iowa, you show up at around 6.30 for your 7 o'clock caucus. You sign in. You hear some speeches from party representatives. You're going to hear some speeches from the campaigns making last-minute pitches for their candidate. There will be members of the different campaigns running around trying to persuade you to vote for their candidate to join their group. There's going to be some official party business, and then you're going to get to voting. 
And how does the voting work? Like, if people aren't just casting ballots, then what does the voting look like? So in Iowa, it's pretty cool. You physically go and stand in a group with other supporters of your chosen candidate. I'm right now, I think I'm pretty solidly in Warren's camp. Uh, Sanders, yeah, Bernie. Yeah, yeah. I'm still undecided. I might not decide until the moment I walk into the caucus. There will be a designated space for you to go gather with other supporters of the candidate that you support. On the Democratic side, this happens in two rounds this year. They're called alignments. And so in the first alignment, they can go stand in a corner with other supporters of the candidate they have chosen, or they can remain uncommitted for the first round of voting to sort of see the lay of the land and see how other people are performing. If you get 15% of the people at the caucus site, you're considered something called viable, which means that you're safe. If you don't get 15% of the vote, you have the chance to win over more voters in a second round to hit that viability benchmark. You're considered non-viable in the first round if you don't hit 15%, but that doesn't mean you're out yet. Voters will go around trying to win people over in the second round, and well-organized campaigns will also have representatives there trying to win people over to join their side. I think that if we realign, I will. I would definitely move to Sanders. Man, I like Andrew Yang, but he's got a long way to go. If not, I'm going for uh, Joe Biden, and the reason I go for him because... I have a feeling that he'd be, he'd be the one that goes against Trump and they will win. Honestly, I'll take anyone. <laughs> so you're open to moving over if you have to? De- definitely. Definitely, yeah. And so at the end, is there just a person who's in charge of counting how many people are standing at each particular spot in the room? Yeah. So after each round of alignment, the voters with each group will be counted. So imagine you are an Andrew Yang supporter. In the first alignment, if, you know, they count your group and you've got 15%, you're good. You can chill. You might be able to get more people in the next round, but you're safe. For the groups that haven't made the 15% threshold, then they're going to have to do some hustling in the second round. So people will actually physically go up to you and be like, you may think that you want to vote for Andrew Yang, but look at the amount of people here. There's not enough people for him to actually be a nominee. Like, you need to come over and stand with Elizabeth Warren because, like, that's the only way that your vote is actually going to count. Yeah, so you're going to have stuff like that in the second alignment. Like, say the voting begins, and in the first round, Andrew Yang only gets 10% of the total people at that particular caucus site, which means that he is not viable. He's not safe yet. And so there's a second round. And what you can do at that point is you can try and win other voters to your side to help get Andrew Yang to 15%. So you can try and win over some uncommitted voters You can try and lure people away from candidates who also aren't viable, that are still up for grabs. You have the option of saying, it doesn't look like Andrew Yang is going to get the support he needs at this caucus. I'm going to go join Joe Biden's corner. I'm going to go join Bernie Sanders's corner. And by the time that second alignment ends, if all goes well for you, Andrew Yang suddenly has 15 percent of the caucus goers at that site. He is considered viable. He gets delegates from that caucus site. If He does not hit that 15% threshold by the time the second voting round is done. He's not viable. He doesn't get to hang on to his delegates. That's crazy to me because I feel like the whole point of or the whole way that that we do secret ballots in in primaries or in any other type of voting is that you're not supposed to be like actively campaigned to while you're there about to cast your vote, right? They want to keep people far away. And the idea that you can just be standing there and then members of the campaign come up to you and are like actively convincing you 
you to walk someplace else. And it's not just members of the campaign. It's like other supporters. It's people in other groups who are like, no, 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 come to us. Or people who are like, their candidate might not have been viable. So they're like looking around for another candidate, trying to see who they should support in the second round. That was always the best part of the process, trying to persuade people once you had made your commitment to come over and join your your part. Were there, are there like things that you would say to convince people to come over to your side? Um, I've known you for so long. We've been in class together. That was, you know, when I was in graduate school. You're a nice guy. (laughs) Also, what happens if you're a registered Iowa voter and you want to participate, but you are living somewhere else or you're in school or you want to vote absentee? Like, is there a way to vote absentee in this process if you're supposed to physically turn up to this location at 7 p.m. on the night of the caucus? That's another important change the Iowa Democratic Party made this year in order to make the Iowa caucuses more accessible to everyone. They're going to have these things called satellite caucuses in the state, outside the state, and in a couple foreign countries, where Iowans who can't get to their designated precinct in Iowa to participate in the caucus can participate in a satellite caucus. Wait, so they actually go to a place in another country to vote in Iowa? Yeah, we're going to have a satellite caucus in Washington, D.C., most likely. There's going to be satellite caucuses at a few different colleges around the country. There's going to be satellite caucuses in Florida and Arizona, where a lot of (laughs) Iowans who are snowbirds go to live. So there are international locations that are scheduled to hold caucuses for Iowans, including uh, expected in Paris and Glasgow. That's bananas. I think they should send me to cover that caucus. So once we reach the end of this process... Is a winner declared immediately? Like, what happens after everyone makes their votes? So what we're going to learn from the Iowa Democratic Party this year are four really important stats. We're going to learn how many votes each candidate got in the first round of voting. We're going to learn how many votes they got in the second round, which will show us how candidates might have changed their performance over the two, which will be interesting. And then we're going to get something called state delegate equivalents. Because voters aren't actually directly voting for a candidate, they're voting for state delegates that get allotted to that candidate. So so they're basically voting for people to represent them when it comes to the convention and represent who they wanted as the nominee. Yes, exactly. And that number called state delegate equivalents gets reported out. Whoever gets the most of them is considered by the press, by political watchers, by the campaigns— as the winner of the Iowa caucus. The Iowa Democratic Party isn't actually going to declare a winner here. Something that is going to be different this year is that we are going to know the number of national delegates that each Democratic candidate gets from Iowa. Iowa's not winner-take-all, so their national delegates can be divided up among different candidates. And usually we had to wait a few months to get that number because the state had to have all these party conventions and do some math. But this year, as soon as the Iowa Democratic Party has all of the results, it might not be on election night, but it should be soon after, we're going to know how many national delegates each candidate has gotten from Iowa. So why are the Iowa caucuses so important in the primary process? Basically, the Iowa caucuses are incredibly important because they are the first. This is the first time that people are actually going to vote for a presidential candidate after months and months and months of campaigning we're finally going to start to see results. Since Iowa's first, and it's been that way since the rules were changed after the 1968 Democratic Convention, 
candidates look to Iowa as a place to sort of cement their status as a frontrunner. And we saw past presidents like Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama do this. They went all in on Iowa, won, and then established themselves as really serious candidates. Winning Iowa or finishing high in the Iowa caucuses shows that you have the strength to continue on, shows that you're a serious candidate, and helps propel you forward in the primary. Whereas a poor showing in Iowa is usually an indication that your campaign's not really going to go the distance. But is it really fair to to make big prognostications about how candidates are going to do once we see how they do in Iowa? Because Iowa demographically is very different from the rest of the country. And I think that even the the caucus process speaks to how different it is from how votes will be taken and gathered elsewhere on Super Tuesday. So how can people say that, like, if you do well in Iowa, that means good things for your ability to do well in the rest of the country if everything about the process in Iowa is different from how we see things happen elsewhere. And that's a really important critique of the Iowa caucuses that aren't new, but we've also heard it this year from candidates like Julian Castro, who dropped out of the race, who raised this long-held critique that Iowa's not a very diverse state. It's 90 percent white. And that just isn't reflective of the makeup of the Democratic Party. And so there are people like Castro, like others, who ask why Iowa should get to hold on to its first-in-the-nation status when the Democratic Party is actually much more diverse than the Iowa electorate. Um, But the fact of the matter is, is that Iowa comes first. Historically, in politics, in U.S. politics, a victory there has meant a lot. And that's why you see presidential candidates spending so much time in Iowa ahead of the election. Hello, Iowa City! You see them going to the state fair. You see them door knocking. This is the fourth day of driving around a snowy Iowa in a bus. Now, I'm always always asked by everybody here in Iowa, God, are you used to the cold yet? You see them holding these small house parties where they're trying to woo over supporters. I'm here one more time to ask you to caucus for me. A lot of face-to-face time. I'm not kidding. I love this so much. And so unless the Democrats really reshuffle the primary calendar, um, I was going to continue to remain very significant for presidential candidates, whether people want it to be or not. Kayla Epstein is a reporter for The Post. The interviews you heard with voters in Iowa were gathered by Ariel Plotnick, an audio producer for The Post. The Senate has provided up to four hours of argument by the parties equally divided on the question of whether or not it shall be in order... The Senate voted on whether we're going to have new witnesses or see new evidence in this case. Imagine what you will see when you read the documents from the Office of Management and Budget. I could stand here for a long time. I'm not going to do that. That's simply not how trials work. A half-baked slapdash process in the House. Just get the impeachment done. I know you're the greatest deliberative body in the world... But not even you can deliberate in a trial without witnesses. Remember I talked about the waving the wand and Ukrainian 
corruption in Ukraine was gone, you're not going to have a witness wand here. There cannot be a total an exoneration without hearing from those witnesses. There's no need for that because these articles of impeachment on their face are defective. There is a storm blowing through this capital. They created the record. Its winds are strong and they move us in uncertain and dangerous directions. Do not allow them to penalize the country. And the answer that they decided upon is no. Are there any senators in the chamber wishing to change his or her vote? If not, the yeas are 49, the nays are 51. The motion is not agreed to. I'm Aaron Blake, senior reporter for The Fix. The vote was as we expected with Mitt Romney from Utah and Susan Collins from Maine voting with Democrats, uh, but with the rest of the 51 Republican senators voting with the president's legal team. And it was kind of a bizarre day because you had House managers on the floor of the Senate basically arguing for having witnesses and arguing in a way like people were still open to persuasion. But then off the floor of the Senate, it was becoming increasingly clear that it was decided that that various Republicans basically came out with statements saying that they were not going to be voting in favor of seeing witnesses. And the whole thing was already done. Yeah, and it was pretty much done on Thursday night after the trial recessed and Senator Lamar Alexander came out with a statement saying that he would not vote for new witnesses. He was the potential all-important fourth vote for new witnesses, potentially for John Bolton, because he had earlier signaled at least a willingness, a desire to have the ability to call new witnesses. And so when he came out and said that, the odds looked pretty long. Over the course of the next 12 to 16 hours, we saw a couple of Republicans say that they would vote for witnesses. And finally, Senator Lisa Murkowski, Republican from Alaska, came out and said that she would also vote against witnesses. And not because she thinks the president didn't do anything wrong, but because the process has been so unfair in her words and that she just didn't think that it should continue. And this is all being decided as more information is coming out today about some of the central issues and events that are part of the impeachment investigation. Yes, exactly. And of course, we've seen a lot of new information in recent weeks, either from uh, claims and documentation provided by Lev Parnas and now from the book that John Bolton is writing and details of the manuscript are leaking to the New York Times. The most recent reporting suggests that John Bolton says President Trump deliberately asked him to get involved in this to start applying pressure on Ukraine to launch these investigations, which is a very serious accusation. It confirm something the Trump team has been disputing for a very long time, which is that he was asking for these quid pro quos and really wanted the things that his aides were pushing for uh, in their conversations with Ukrainians. But if you look at how Republicans, including Lamar Alexander, explained their decision on new witnesses, what Lamar Alexander said was essentially the Democrats proved their case. I believe them. They provided enough evidence to convince me that the president tied these investigations to withholding military aid, maybe to withholding a White House meeting from Ukraine. But even with that proven, 
it doesn't rise to the level of an impeachable offense. That he they, doesn't need more documents or interviews or witness testimony right. to, to change his mind on that. They basically covered themselves from whatever else is going to come out. And more stuff is going to come out, as we're seeing in these last few days here. It will come out when John Bolton's book eventually comes out. But they covered themselves saying, look, I just admitted that this happened, but it's not impeachable and we're moving on. Now, that's that works for them. It's not necessarily what President Trump wants to see because he wants it to be a perfect call. He wants to have done nothing wrong. And that is not the message that we're getting from these Republican senators right now. Basically, that they're they're recognizing that he did something wrong, but they just don't think that it is serious enough to really consider convicting him or removing him from office. That is what we're seeing from multiple senators, from Lamar Alexander. Uh, ben Sass uh, told a reporter that uh, Lamar Alexander speaks for a lot of people in the Senate. Very conspicuous comment about that. Rob Portman said that there was something wrong here. Marco Rubio, a uh, Republican from Florida, said, uh, you know, even if the president's conduct rises to the level of an impeachable offense, that doesn't necessarily mean we should remove him from office, which I thought was a really remarkable comment, uh, basically acknowledging that the evidence could be very damning. But uh, look, there's an election around the corner. It might be bad for the country. It's just not what we should be doing right now. But one thing that I don't understand is that if Democrats have been fighting tooth and nail to get John Bolton to be allowed to testify in the Senate, and John Bolton has all this information that he seems ready and willing to share because he has put it all in his book, why doesn't he just come out with that information? Why doesn't he just make a statement or hold a press conference or give that information to senators now before this vote on whether to convict or acquit the president happens? It's a really good question. I think doing that while the trial was still happening would have looked like he was trying to insert himself in a process that hadn't asked him to weigh in. Of course, when the House was doing its impeachment inquiry, John Bolton said that he wanted the courts to rule on whether he could testify. The only reason he was going to testify in a Senate trial is because there wasn't time for the courts to rule on that question. So he has been trying to at least play this by the book and not make it look like he's doing this because he has an axe to grind. Though to be fair, I feel like the flip side of that is that it looks like he's withholding the information now because he wants people to buy his book in a month. That's the other side of this, and I think that's the one that is frustrating for Republicans right now. They they think that he's obviously doing this for attention. He's obviously trying to sell books, and that's true. Uh, but he's also speaking out against the leader of a party that he has belonged to for a very long time. He is burning bridges with people that he has crafted relationships with for uh, for decades now. He is under a tremendous amount of attack from the president's uh, media allies, especially. Uh, this comes with a personal cost for John Bolton. He seems to believe that it's the right thing to do. Uh, and uh, and now we're going to probably find out after the president is acquitted exactly what he claims, uh, whether it's in his book or in media interviews that he might feel like he can now give. So at this point, then it's basically a done deal, right, that the president is going to be acquitted. Well, it is all over except for the shouting right now. The question is how long the shouting is going to last for. Aaron Blake is a political reporter for The Fix. Senators are planning to vote on Wednesday on the two impeachment charges against Trump for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. 
On Friday night, Republican officials said that closing arguments will be held early next week ahead of the votes. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 